Have you ever wondered why anyone drinks Malort? Or if there are actually lobsters in the Chicago River? Then listen to the Curious City podcast, where we answer all your questions about Chicago and the region. WBEZ's Curious City is part of the NPR network and available wherever you find your podcasts. I'm Justin Kaufman, and this is WBEZ's Weekly News Roundup. Each week, WBEZ takes you inside the biggest local and state stories from the last seven days. A variety of COVID-19 items dominated the headlines, including the tweet heard around the world late Thursday night. The president of the United States and the first lady have both tested positive for the coronavirus. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot says the city has made enough progress to relax restrictions on indoor activities. For some bars and taverns that don't serve food and couldn't make it outside, this will be their first time welcoming customers back for months. Happy Halloween, everyone. Happy Halloween. Luna Destroyers. Overall, crime fell slightly from last September, but there were 81 murders. WBEZ finds no September with more since 1993. Joining me this week on the Roundup, Heather Sharon of WTTW. Heather, welcome back. Hi, Justin. Hi, and also with us, Chicago Sun-Times editorial writer and author Lee Bay. Lee, welcome to Reset. Thank you. Good to be here. Good to talk with you. All right. So, Heather, I'll start with you. I mean, the big story today and and probably the biggest of the week and month and year is the testing positive of the president and the first lady when it comes to COVID-19. Your reaction to to where we're at right now and what we know so far. I would say that we don't know much. Uh, We only know that they have tested positive. Uh, The latest reports from the New York Times are that the president has a fever and mild cold-like symptoms and that the first lady is asymptomatic at this point. However, we don't know how he contracted the virus and we do not know, of course, how severe his his symptoms will be. He was supposed to be on a call uh, just about an hour ago with God governors about the coronavirus response. Vice President Mike Pence, who has tested negative for the coronavirus, participated in that call in the president's place. So I think you will start to hear a lot of questions about his conditions uh, unless the president makes some sort of public appearance or issues some sort of additional public statement in, in the hours to come. So, Lee, what are your thoughts on this? And 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 frankly, I mean, this is something that uh, is shocking and stunning to many, but it comes in the middle of, a, of an election campaign with 30 days until the election. So what impact do you think this has on the race? I think that, you know, uh, as a populace, uh, we have to probably uh, appeal to our, our better angels. I mean, there's a tendency, as I was mentioning to one of my colleagues, to say, na 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 right? right. Uh, you know, behind this. But the ramifications of, of, of this obviously are deeper than that, that, you know, it does place a question mark around the campaign season, depending on how widespread this is or how ill the president is. If the campaign has to stop, I think Joe Biden, uh, you know, has to make a decision of, you know, whether he wants to suspend his campaign. I think the JFK suspend his campaign when Nixon had some kind of um, mm. uh, injury or malady. I mean, that, that often becomes the case. All of those things are kind of on the table now. Yeah, and but, but Heather, the, the hard part about that is suspending campaigns is that the president, even if he's he's bedridden, even if his symptoms get worse, if he's Ill, able to type, he's going to tweet and he's going to tweet and he's going to be continual uh, in campaign mode. So how do you deal with the fact that, yeah, you might have been able to suspend a campaign back in 1960, but you, I'm not sure that you can, you know, with all the digital tools that are available to the campaigns, they're going to suspend in 2020. 
Well, from what we know right now, Vice President Biden has tested negative for the coronavirus. Uh, his his doctor announced just a little while ago, um, and he had planned events today in Michigan, which his campaign has said will go forward as of right now. Uh, so I don't think you're going to see a campaign uh, be suspended. Uh, and of course, the last time we had sort of an event of this magnitude, this close to a presidential election was was back in 2008 when uh, John McCain, the Republican nominee at the time, suspended his campaign because of the collapse of Lehman Brothers. We don't have to look all the way back to the 60s mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. a campaign su- suspension, but I think that the circumstances are significantly different now that um, it, we're certainly, as we have been in unprecedented territory, and if anybody tells you they know what's going to happen next, right. uh, they are lying to you. So uh, we just we have to just sort of wait and see how it plays out. I wonder about how this plays out. Does, does this make the president more sympathetic? Does it uh, start to, to put a dent in the fact that he's strong and he can beat the virus? Where, where is it play? I mean, we're so early in the process, Heather, but there are some threads and there are some uh, storylines that the president has relied upon uh, in his campaign uh, re- for reelection that that could be in jeopardy here. Certainly. So, you know, less than a week ago, we heard the president tell a crowded rally where people were not socially distanced and few people were wearing masks that the coronavirus uh, basically affects nobody. And that um, this, of course, is a direct challenge to that. And, you know, ever since the death of, of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, the president's campaign has been sort of pushing attention away from the coronavirus and the pandemic response to the fight for the Supreme Court and whether Amy Coney Barrett should be confirmed to the seat. So I I think that that certainly complicates that effort, if Mm -hmm. nothing else. Um, And I, you know, I I can't refrain from mentioning that it was exactly four years ago today that the president spent a good deal of time mocking former Democratic presidential nominee Hillary Clinton for contracting pneumonia. I am a mom. I always tell my kids, you know, you know, the Michelle Obama, you know, if they go low, they go high. But there's, you know, certainly a pattern of the president using people's illnesses against them. And I think that that's part of why so many people perhaps on social media are having a hard time sort of letting their better angels uh, fly. Uh, Let's talk some other things that happened this week. Mayor Lori Lightfoot rolling back COVID-19 restrictions on Chicago businesses like bars and some restaurants and some gyms. Indoor services back. Uh, capacity is up. Uh, what can you tell us about that, Lee? What 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 do you think about the the fact that that we're making a move to uh, normalcy here in Chicago? It's interesting ground to walk on, but I can tell you that um, uh, what we hear at the Sun Times during our editorial board sessions, even from candidates on uh, both sides of the political spectrum, they want to see businesses open back up again and, you know, particularly places of entertainment and, and, and others, um, that there's probably a sensible way to do it, they say, and that now is the time. A little scary still, though, and I think that people will, you know, I mean, I'm not sure people will flock back to these places uh, very right. quickly, uh, but at least it is re- some response to the idea that people's livelihoods have been threatened by this, uh, by the closures that, um, you know, let's find a way, a pathway to um, kind of get things back open again. Heather, that's got to be the, the 
Lee nailed it. I mean, are consumers going to come back? I mean, are people going to come back to bars? Are they going to come back to, to indoor spaces like they did before the pandemic? Uh, obviously, there are capacity issues here, and, and it continues to just be, what, 40% of capacity. But th- that has to be a, a part of this equation, a car- part of this story as well. It sure is. And I think that is very much an open question as to whether these moves will benefit the businesses enough to save them from closing their doors. But I also think that it sort of is, as least said, a, a little bit of, of a frightening time because most of the restrictions that lifted yesterday on Thursday were put in place on Ju- July 20th when Chicago was averaging 233 confirmed cases of the coronavirus every day. Uh, we are now averaging more than 300 cases of the coronavirus every day. So Dr. Allison Arwady, the commissioner of public health, says, you know, things are going in the right direction. So even though that that overall case count hasn't come down, Chicago is still in a better position. However, you know, I think that so often we forget that this virus has taken such a disproportionate toll on Black and Latino Chicagoans who, by and large, have these sort of minimum wage service jobs and who are at greatest risk for the virus. So um, I know that the city will be watching the trends and the case counts very closely. I, I just think that this is the you know proverbial rock in the hard place. It, it, unless you increase the capacity limits as the mayor has done, you're going to see more businesses fail. You're going to see sort of the economic toll worsen. But if you do make those changes, you potentially open the door to at least yeah. an increase, if not a surge of the virus. I can't even imagine. I, I, I can't even imagine if, if the surge happens again and they have to go back in capacity and shut doors for indoor. Part of this leaves political. I mean, part of this is, you know, yes, we're going to follow the data and the science, but at a certain point, you start to recognize the impact uh, and the toll that, lo- that, uh, that these restrictions are having on small businesses. And, you know, speaking as a person who worked for a mayor, two mayors previous, people are letting the mayor's office know, believe me, small businesses, <laughs> that, that, that they're hurting, yeah. Right? Yeah, right? I mean, they're letting them know. I mean, we, you know, if you dig up a street in front of a small business or even a big business and leave the hole there too long, they're calling you. So she's hearing this. Before we move on to other topics, Lee, I just I want to touch on the presidential debate earlier this week. Most observers, no matter what their politics are, agree that it wasn't very presidential. I'll defer to the term, although I won't use it, that I think Dana Bash said on (laughs) on CNN. That's exactly what it was. And you think about other debates of the past, obviously, and you can't help but to go back to the Kennedy-Nixon debates or Reagan debates against Carter. And and to see what it it has devolved to, it's frightening. And the world sees this. I also um, have noticed that there's kind of like a tendency in the media to blame both candidates. They, you know, they were both sniping at each other. When clearly, at least by, by my view, you know, the president, who, who as president should set the tone for the debate, did set the tone for the debate uh, more than, than Biden did. It's it just just an embarrassment. Yeah, we'll just leave it there. Heather, I know you want to talk about it, too, but I don't know if we need to go any past uh, anywhere past what Lee just said. It was an embarrassment. <laughs> Across I, the I board. think that pretty much sums it up. Yeah, I think it does. That's Heather Sharon of WTTW, along with Sun-Times editorial writer Lee Bay. Let's move on to some of the other big stories we've been talking about this week.
For the first time, a former Commonwealth Edison executive has been convicted as part of the company's long-running bribery scheme. Governor J.B. Pritzker wants House Speaker Michael Madigan to testify in a legislative corruption inquiry. Suburban Chicago parents have filed a lawsuit in hopes of resuming school sports this fall. Women's health care activists in Illinois are criticizing President Donald Trump's decision to nominate conservative judge Amy Coney Barrett. It's crazy to think that the nomination of a Supreme Court justice wasn't the biggest story of the week, but, but it did happen. It was this week, and it's huge. Heather, what do we know about Judge Amy Coney Barrett? Well, she's a very conservative jurist, and I think if you put Ruth Bader Ginsburg at one end of the judicial spectrum, Amy Coney Barrett would be at the absolute other side of the spectrum. In the past, she has argued that Roe versus Wade, the 1973 decision that legalized abortion in America, was wrongly decided uh, and should be overturned. She has also opined in lower court decisions that the Affordable Care Act, better known as Obamacare uh, is unconstitutional. So um, I think that those two issues are probably going to take up the bulk of her confirmation hearings, although I feel required to say if they occur, given mm-hmm. the uh, spread of the coronavirus in Washington, uh, Senator Mike Lee from Utah, he also announced today that he had tested positive. He is a member of the Judiciary Committee that would have to you know, send her nomination to the full Senate for action. So there's a, a lot that we don't know about the process, but there's no doubt that um, Coney Barrett would be one of, if not the most conservative judge um, ever confirmed to the Supreme Court if that you know, does happen. Lee, do you think that what's happening in Washington, is, as Heather mentioned, just this idea that uh, the COVID-19 uh, positive t- cases, could that be what derails a, a quick and speedy confirmation hearing in the Senate? Well, you know, it depends on how widespread it is and how sick people are. I mean, uh, but given the fact that you can have it and be asymptomatic, you can be quarantined but still communicate, uh, I think that um, the stakes are high enough uh, for, the, for the GOP that they would find a way, even if it's by sending up smoke signals, if, if that's allowed, yeah. to get this nomination across. Uh, it's going to be such a – that story uh, playing out in the next couple of weeks is going to be intense. Uh, let's switch gears, talk about some state news. Illinois House Speaker Michael Madigan and the ComEd bribery scandal. He's now facing a challenger in January for the speakership. State Representative Stephanie Kifowit. Uh, what do we think of this, Heather? I, I mean, obviously, we still got to get past the election, all that kind of stuff. But, but how this week we saw a little bit more about what uh, was playing out with the bribery scandal with ComEd and the state. Up until this point, the question has been not, you know, will the Democrats control the House after the election? They are all but certain to, and they may in fact increase their supermajority in the House. The question was, would anybody run against Michael Madigan for the speakership? And we answered that question this week. So now it's not just should Michael Madigan stay as speaker, it's, you know, who are you going to vote for? Now, It's certainly the strongest challenge to Madigan's power than he's seen in in many, many years. But um, much like the Republicans in Washington, Michael Madigan has always been about power and about retaining that power. So I think it would be foolish to sort of count him out. However, he's under increasing pressure, not just 
from Stephanie Kifowitz's challenge, but the ongoing hearings in Springfield into the ComEd bribery scandal. And there's, you know, an ongoing federal investigation. And too much to my chagrin, you know, U.S. Attorney John Lausch does not respond when I ask him, you know, who are you going to indict next? Mm. And, and we just simply don't know. Lee, when you think about this, and I know you've been a political observer for years here in Chicago and, and the state of Illinois, what do you make of when the, when the governor is saying, I want uh, the speaker should explain himself, but the speaker's like, nah, I don't need to. As Heather mentioned, and she talked about power, uh, you know, this is, this is what power and holding on to it looks like, to have to explain yourself or to say, yeah, I guess I should explain yourself. At this stage in the game, it could put the smell of blood in the water. Yeah, he's right? not going to do it. Right, right. He's not, he's not going to do it. You know, there, there's Democrat control in, in the state house in Springfield, and, and that's important. And uh, are Pritzker and Madigan on the same page? And what does it mean for the future of the speaker? That's a really big question, because certainly it would have an effect, you know, if Governor Pritzker held a press conference and said he should step down as speaker or he should resign from the Illinois House. Um, but, you know, I think that is unlikely because, you know, it's in nobody's interest, at least before November 3rd, for there to be an interparty democratic warfare opening up. Um, but also, uh, Michael Madigan controls literally millions and millions of dollars in campaign funds that not only do Democratic members of the Illinois House need to get reelected in a, in a month, but also it could threaten the outcome of the graduated income tax uh, right. amendment, which is also on the ballot. And that is Governor Pritzker's. He said this his top number one priority. So you're not going to see Governor Pritzker do anything to elevate the, the ComEd scandal because all that does is raise questions about whether Illinois lawmakers should really be granted more money to spend because nobody wants to have that discussion on the Democratic side. And the Republicans certainly do, but their numbers have dwindled so, so much in state politics. They don't control any constitutional office. They are in the super minority in both the House and the Senate. It, you know, leaves them sort of with their hands tied in, in how they can elevate this issue. Yeah. Uh, top priority. I wouldn't have known it from all the ads that, <laughs> that are out on both sides. <laughs> you know, let's talk about schools because we had a big conversation about it here on Reset earlier in the week. A lot of suburban school districts are making their plans to get back into the classroom. They look at the Catholic schools. They look at some of the private schools. They say, you know what? Remote learning is not all it's cracked up to be. We need to get these kids back into the physical classroom. Uh, Lee, what do you think of this? Uh, we haven't heard yet from CPS, but uh, it seems that the overwhelming thought is that uh, kids are going to be back in the classroom. You know, I, I think that's where ultimately it's, it's headed. Again, the how becomes uh, the safe how. Listen, I teach a class at IIT uh, where I've been doing it on Zoom for the past, uh, you know, five, five weeks or so. And, you know, and, and it's, it's not so bad because it's a lecture-based class. It's not so bad, right? But, but I can only imagine what it must be like and for elementary school, uh, uh, and, and sitting there all day, my, my class is only two and a half hours, to sit there all day, it's tough. So there's two things going on here is, are students getting as much out of the learning experience this way as they would out of the normal classroom, A, and then B, you know, try to find a way to get them back into that classroom. Uh, but it's scary. It's scary. I mean, I've got a, a daughter, my youngest daughter, who's um, spending the semester at home learning remotely um, from college because... You know, the idea of yeah, being right. in a class is terrifying. Yeah, and, and college is a whole other story. Heather, it's one thing, and we had a lot of teachers and parents and people call up and say it's going well, it's great. You know, they've got little pods, eight to nine students, it's working out. 
But we talked with the superintendent from U46 in Elgin, second largest uh, in super, you know school district in Illinois, and they're talking 25, 30. You talk about CPS, you're at 30, 35 per classroom. I mean, it gets different when the sizes of these classrooms get bigger. It is absolutely. And, you know, much like um, the discussion over whether to reopen bars and to increase capacities, there really is no good solution here because there's no doubt that remote learning for younger kids is less than ideal and that there are certainly going to be achievement gaps, particularly among Black and Latino children who may have less resources at home and may have, you know, sort of a harder time sort of finding a quiet place to learn or, you know, just any number of different challenges. But the fact of the matter is, is that if you open up schools, as we've seen in other countries and other states, you're going to see an increase in cases of the virus. And that has to be the trade-off. And I don't think that Chicago has figured out how to navigate that trade-off as of yet. So the earliest that the Chicago students could go back would be November. And I think the, the real question is, what does the spread of the pandemic look like? like by them. You know, we've been warning for months about a fall surge as people sort of head back indoors after the summer months. Yeah, right. There are so many unknowns right now that I think it's really hard to figure out where it's going to go. And let's not forget that you have the very powerful Chicago's Teachers Union, which has been consistently saying, we want to open up schools, but we have to do it safe and we will not allow our members' health to be put at risk. And, you know, you and I have talked, you know, ad nauseum about how they have been at odds with Mayor Lightfoot basically since day one. And this will be no different. So it's just unfortunately one of those situations where there is no good answer and that all we can do is choose for our kids the less bad option. That's right. That's it for the Friday News Roundup. Thanks to our panel today, WTTW Chicago politics reporter Heather Schreiber. Roan and Chicago Sun-Times editorial writer and author Lee Bay. Heather Lee, thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Justin. And that's the Weekly News Roundup. What do you think? What do you like? What would you change? Shoot us an email at reset at wbez.org. I'm Justin Kaufman. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you back here again for another Weekly News Roundup from Chicago's NPR News Station 91.5 WBEZ. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts.